Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. It's Sunday, March 5, 2023. Welcome to The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can subscribe to my work and get exclusive access to bonus content, live Q&As and more at patreon.com slash 5-Minute News. Joining us today is Professor of the Practice of Public Leadership and Social Justice and Director of the William Monroe Trotter Collaborative for Social Justice at Harvard Kennedy School, He's a former president of the NAACP, Professor Cornell William Brooks. Welcome to The Weekend Show. It's great to be here. Good to be with you. So I uh, am thrilled to have you on. Uh, There's a lot of questions I actually have for you, which, you know, I think you're kind of best place to answer. I I speak as as a British person, like coming from Europe and doing the news in the UK and coming to the US and seeing the kind of uh, social and certainly racial landscape completely different to what I know. And and it's been a real education. I suppose this is a lesson that you really do need to live in a place to kind of get a sense of what, what the culture is and, you know, more than just reading about it or watching TV, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we've just um, seen Black History Month in the last uh, last four weeks here in the in the U.S., the, the the meaning behind that has changed, I believe, in recent years. Uh, previously, it was, you know, to certainly celebrate the successes of great uh, black Americans. But it has been almost weaponized in a way by, by some, certainly politicians. And we're seeing a lot coming out of Florida at the moment with Governor Ron DeSantis. Just explain to me, as we start, what Black History Month should mean and, and maybe how it's changed. So if we think about Carter G. Woodson, this extraordinary historian, African-American historian, who is a scholar and a black man on the intellectual landscape of America for the better part of 100 years ago. And as he looks across the cultural and intellectual landscape of the country, he takes note of the fact that black people's contributions to art, music, science, um, law, uh, the, the richness of this country are, are not only not taken note of, are uh, ignored and obscured and erased consciously. And so he creates Negro History Week, which later becomes Black History Month. And it represented an occasion for decades on end to teach little children Uh, the lessons of black history, which irrespective of what color hue you are, are in fact, in this country, your history. So fast forward to 2023, we have a Harvard and Yale educated governor uh, in the person of Ron DeSantis, uh, who has uh, no doubt 
uh, encountered black history, um, certainly on either one of those campuses and in the state of Florida. He takes this occasion to literally weaponize black history. How? Uh, by uh, going after diversity, uh, diversity and inclusion uh, on the college campus, by going after black history in the schools, by effectively banning, if not censoring, an advanced placement course for children, children aspiring to college. And so what he has effectively done is put black history on the defensive so that we have school teachers simply trying to teach who have to think about what books uh, can I use or not use. Um, children preparing for, students preparing for college, uh, wondering whether or not the study of black history is in fact intellectually viable. So this is a very perilous moment in the country. The point he makes is that if you don't single out black people, then that is in some way going to mean that there will be less racism because by by not educating people about the 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 history and the plight of growing up black in america mm -hmm. that in some way that will actually reduce kind of segregation it will bring people together and you can argue mm -hmm. and please understand i'm playing devil's advocate sure, sure. you can argue that there will be some white people in florida some parents of schools and they'll be like yeah that of course, if you don't make a whole thing of it, then it's not going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, if Ron DeSantis were to make that kind of an argument in one of the classes he took at Yale or Harvard, uh, he would be, you know, laughed out of a seat. Here's why: take note of the fact that if you study European history, it does not make you any less American. If you study American history, uh, the history of colonial America, it does not in any way diminish, decrease, or erase colonialism uh, in the world or, or uh, colonial history in the world. And so this is a kind of uh, uh, silly, intellectually silly argument that is really a pretext, a fig leaf for demagoguery with respect to the presidential primaries. He knows full well that this kind of argument ignites, inflames, acts as an accelerant, if you will, uh, in the cultural wars uh, in this country. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, think about it. As an as a, as a, um, elementary school student, I was fascinated by the art of the Renaissance. I was fascinated by Michelangelo. I would try to, as a, as a, as a young person, as a young artist, try to uh, copy the European masters. It didn't make me any less African-American. It didn't make me any less or more of an artist. And the, the fact of the matter is we encourage young people to explore other histories, other cultures. That has always been, long been the glory of higher education and education in this country. And so here we have a Yale and Harvard educated governor uh, pretending to be a uh, pretending to be a kind of cultural hayseed. Uh, and he's he's literally faking it. 
right? Because it's the same for drag queens and the same for trans people, isn't it? There's this fear that if you kind of in the in the presence of a, or a child is in the presence of a trans person or a drag queen, that they will become trans because they'll like transgenderism or take an interest and they'll become trans. And it's the same if they go to a drag queen show and maybe they'll want to start wearing uh, dresses and wigs. And, oh. and, and that lack of kind of intellectualism in this... It, the, the problem with it is when somebody in authority, and we saw this with Donald Trump as well, when somebody in authority who's wearing a suit and a tie says it, and, the, and with white skin, obviously, that kind of helps, says it with authority, then there will be a significant proportion of the, of the audience, and certainly in the state of Florida, who are going to be like, well, if he says it's true, then it must be true. So, so how how do how does society deal with people who are trying to kind of rewrite history in a, in a revisionist way, but also rewrite the future? I think it's incredibly important for us to call out on this soft racism, right, and and, and do so uh, as a matter of being intellectually and morally and emotionally honest, right. And the other part of this is laying claim to that which is being taken from us, right. So, in other words. Uh, when, when Ron DeSantis says we need to rip black history uh, from the history books and the curriculum of schools, this is an intellectual, cultural, emotional, historical theft, not merely from black children, but from all children, right? So, so if you can imagine a, a, a child who is fascinated by jazz and they're denied the opportunity to study about Louis Armstrong. Or the, a child who is an aspiring operatic singer and, and wants to learn the history of Marian uh, Anderson. How is it that she had the opportunity to sing at the Daughters of American Revolution Hall in Washington, D.C., but was denied that opportunity? But Eleanor Roosevelt intervenes on her behalf. She ends up singing on the mall in Washington, D.C. This is an incredible story. Every time Ron DeSantis weaponizes this history, he is literally committing an intellectual assault on every child in the state of Florida and beyond that. And even worse still, it gives license, cover, and the kind of political authentication uh, for the racists in our country, the violent racists in our country, uh, the people who literally um, mean, not, not merely black people harm, because think about this. When you go after James Baldwin in the schools, you're also going after the diary of Anne Frank. If you weaponize the autobiography of Malcolm X, you're weaponizing the diary of Anne Frank. And so this is a very, very dangerous thing uh, at the hands of somebody who should know better and does know better. So these kind of racist dog whistles have yeah. taken different forms over the years. And, and so... If we go back to Nixon, I think, is where there was this kind of shift where he talked about law and order. And what law and order really meant was let's just take all the black people off the streets and put them in, in, into prison. Then with, with Reagan, there was the, the whole kind of drugs thing. Even though the, the pharmaceutical companies knew full well they were flooding communities with drugs, getting people addicted, and that enabled Nancy Reagan to uh, tell them to just say no, and they all ended up being rounded up and incarcerated, and we saw incarceration numbers rise significantly in, in the early 80s. And then law and order um, certainly happened again with, with uh, Bush, but it also happened with Clinton, and, and he has admitted that that was a mistake and some of the language that he used was, and certainly one of the major bills that he signed was a mistake. Mm -hmm. 
But what we've seen now is it's almost like that kind of, you know, tough on crime, law and order, even war on terror. I mean, these are all phrases that try to reduce the validity of the black and brown communities and 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 make the white man supreme. And and if we bring it right up to present day with make America white again, the with the the caps, that's basically it's just language and cover for not just systemic but a very baked in traditional racism. Think about it this way. Whenever policymakers, elected officials, politicians engage in political warfare, cultural warfare, they're often cultural, political, and also physical casualties, right? So what we saw in the Trump administration was this toxic political rhetoric that literally led to an uptick in hate crime, and by whom? Not merely adults, but children. We immediately saw this violent, uh, vicious vectoring upward of hate crime among children in school. Well, look at Kyle Rittenhouse taking it upon himself to get a get a rifle and and go to a BLM protest and take matters into his own hands. He was he was a practically a minor. That's right. And and, and, you know, the, the thing is, sometimes we sometimes the press will describe this rhetoric as conservative. Right. It's not conservative. It's racist in the same way that the phrase the alt right was no more descriptive of of white supremacy than this notion of uh, anti-wokeness being descriptive of of white supremacy is white supremacy. Right. And here's the thing. One can be pro-black history. One can be pro-black culture and not be, quote, anti-European history or anti-Italian history or, or, or French history. The fact of the matter is, because I love Black history so much, I love all history, right? It's a gateway. Um, uh, it provides vistas in all kinds of history. Like, for example, if you studied um, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, one of the first Black to get a Ph.D. in sociology, uh, who was a graduate of, of Harvard, but also Fisk University and the University of Berlin, one of the foremost intellectuals of the 20th century. If you study his life, you'll you'll learn lessons about the the origin, the genesis story of the NAACP, but you'll also learn lessons about German philosophy. You'll l- learn lessons about the uh, American pragmatist, the American philosopher, William James, who was his tutor, who was his mentor here at Harvard. And so the point being is this notion that, that, that black history is somehow going to hurt your child is completely ridiculous. And, and but black history is American history, it is, it is isn't American. it? I mean, and that's the point. That's right. And, and, and the thing is, if American history were more open to the stories of black people, Carter G. Woodson, the better part of a century ago, would have had no need to create Negro History Week, giving rise to Black History Month. But because uh, Black history was like literally weaponized then, right? So the notion was, we don't want to tell Black stories. We don't want to validate the, the reality that Black brilliance is pervasive, right? So, you know, how is it we have a culture, right? where you can travel any place on the planet 
and you see black people's culture in the form of music, in the form of art, in the, in the form of fashion. But not only that, but also black people's literature. And so this notion that we can have one, um, you know, governor squash and then try entire intellectual history is ridiculous. Right. And particularly one who should know better. Let, let's explain. Let's imagine that our audience right now mm-hmm. are just white people in Florida. Mm-hmm. They cannot, or have they chosen to ignore mm. slavery? Have they chosen to ignore the, the violence and police brutality against black people? Have they, have they, are they choosing to ignore it? Or are they genuinely so white and supremacist in their, you know, in their, in the, the very fabric of their being that they cannot have empathy or they will not have empathy for the fact that there are people in America who have struggled and have not had such an easy ride through life. I mean, I, I just I just can't get my head around this. Is it lack of empathy or is it just historical racism? How do we explain to these people that it's not an even playing field and that, and that white people do have the advantage? So I want to lift up a couple of things. I, I think it is... The fact that there are some people who are unreconstructed white supremacists. But I don't think the majority. I think there are others who are afraid of black history because it has been weaponized and characterized. And then thirdly, there are people who quite simply don't know the stories, don't know the history. And so are very much afraid of or antagonistic toward something that they know nothing about. And so what I would say to the citizens, my fellow citizens of of Florida, is in your state of Florida, right, who was the first and one of the the, the first black presidential advisors, but one of the first women advisors, Mary McLeod Bethune, who founded a university in your state of Florida with five little girls and less than $5. She starts an entire, that story should speak to every little girl, every little boy, every child who's an aspiring educator. That's, that's, that's your history. In the, in the same state of Florida, there was a couple by the name of Harry and Harrietta Moore, so dedicated to American democracy, so dedicated to the right to vote, that they registered more people in the state of Florida Florida had more black people registered to vote than any state in the country. And this couple, so dedicated to the right to vote that the white supremacists targeted them, put a bomb under their bedroom, blew them up on Christmas Day, their 25th wedding anniversary. And that family is still dedicated to the state of Florida. And so my point is there are all of these incredible stories in the state of Florida, that inspire, that instruct, that give us insight into who we are as human beings, what we're capable of as human beings. And so my, 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 my message to my fellow citizens of Florida is why be afraid of your own greatness, number one. Number yeah. two, the history of black people is not merely suffering. It's resilience. It's struggle. It teaches us teaches us what we're capable of, not merely what we what we have endured. And so this whole caricature of, you know, black history 
is about them struggling as opposed to our demonstrating resilience, I think needs to be made clear. And the last point here is we can't whitewash uh, white supremacy. We can't whitewash discrimination, Jim Crow and, and racism. But that is much of the story. But it's not the whole of the story. You know, in the same way that uh, um, you as a Brit may, may, may relate to this, uh, I don't think all of American history is the Boston Tea Party. You know, in other words, America <laughs> yeah. is engaging in, in destruction of private property and, and destroying British tea. I think, I think American history is a little bit more complicated than that. And, and, and the Brits had a, a, were hugely influential in, 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 sl- in the slavery That's right. story. That's- and and I don't want to apologize on behalf of the United Kingdom, but I recognize that it, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a great story, but we are taught it in school. And it is something that we have learned to um, make every effort to understand. And, and, you know, racism has not been eradicated in the United Kingdom by any means. I mean, it was only a few years ago that they tried to tell the Windrush generation, who were, you know, a Caribbean generation, who were brought to, you know, a, a kind of sovereign nation to come to the UK and, and help rebuild the UK after the Second World War, and, and uh, suddenly told them that if they didn't have paperwork, they would have to return to the Caribbean. These are people that came as babies. That's right. So, I mean, we've had our own issues recently as well. I just want to mention, sorry, go ahead before I bring the next thing in. Just, let me give you an example of why, why I think our histories have to be told uh, in all their paradoxes and, and ironies and complications. So let's think about the Brits, right? And, and, and slavery. Lloyds of London insured the slave trade, right? Well known. But maybe less well known. In the Montgomery boycott that Martin Luther King led in the late 50s, when black people abandoned the buses, the segregated buses, and began to walk and take rides in their own black-owned taxicab services, the white power structure took away the insurance policies of the black taxicabs in order to break the Montgomery boycott. A white businessman, I should say a, 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 a black businessman, goes to Lloyds of London, same Lloyds of London that, that insured the slave trade, to insure the black taxicab drivers so that they might uh, succeed in the Montgomery boycott, which led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um, um, banning discrimination in public accommodations. So my point being is these stories are complicated, but they all need to be told. You can't whitewash the things that are um, they're unjust, but the stories should speak to us and, and, and really inspire us in terms of how we can fight injustice. That's, I, I thought that needed to be lifted up. The, the, the nuance that you describe requires people to be inquisitive, doesn't mm-hmm. it? And and there is a kind of lack of intellectualism generally now. You know, I think with DeSantis wanting to take books off of shelves and replace them with, you know, whitewashed books where people can't get a full education in some states because of this desire to kind of rewrite the curriculum and 
for some reason, give parents the choice of what their children should be taught. You know, I, as a parent, do not want to set the curriculum for my child. But I, but I recognize that what he's trying to do is create almost an army of like future Republican voters, mm-hmm. get them young, right? Mm-hmm. So that they can grow up not being well-rounded and understanding about, you know, the true nature of an integrated society and cultures. Mm-hmm. But actually, he wants to make more mini-me Ron DeSantis's so that they can all vote for him when he is the president. And I would just mention, this isn't a promotion, but on Friday his book came out, mm-hmm. which is titled The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. Mm-hmm. I mean... We could tear that. We could easily tear that title uh, and the and the subtitle apart because, again, to me, that is a racist dog whistle. That's right. That's right. I, you know, it's it's tragic that we come to a point where the uh, blueprint, the playbook, better yet, the, the playbook for winning the Republican presidential primary is to blow racist dog whistles, to demagogue, and to demonize black people, right? And there's a hierarchy of prejudice in this country such that um, people like Ron DeSantis think that, well, you know, maybe um, I can demagogue and demonize trans people. I can demagogue and demonize um, uh, immigrants. I can demagogue and demonize black people. But maybe there are other people I can't be so explicit about. But at the end of the day, what I found is discrimination is incredibly uh, non-discriminatory and indiscriminate, if you will, uh, in in its victims. And so my point is, whenever you demonize uh, black people, you can be sure you're going to demonize other people. And, you know, this playbook is just, just, frankly, um, it's ugly. What's so interesting is if you look at kind of archive footage of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the people around Martin Luther King, they were, they were majority black people. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the BLM protests that went on all around the world, the, the, these yeah. ama- amazing protests that, mm-hmm. that, you know, hopefully we all joined in, the color scheme was very different. It was, it was very much a, a kind of new... At level of activism where people of all backgrounds and, and, and all pigmentation were prepared to join the fight. And I, I found that ver- I was very optimistic at, at, at seeing that. It's like the Women's March. It wasn't just women, right? Yeah. And, 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 and this is maybe how things are changing. But th- that, I believe, is what Ron DeSantis and others like him are afraid of. Right. So in other words, we saw after the George at the George Floyd was murdered and the uh, global protests in this country, we saw 26 million Americans take to the streets across 550 jurisdictions in the largest, most racially diverse and geographically diverse and ethnically diverse demonstration in American history, supported by millions of people more around the globe. And so what we have as the fastest, most dynamic, uh, growing uh, element of the electorate is this multiracial, multi-ethnic uh, generation of young people. And so what they're trying to do in every way uh, possible is uh, start these culture wars to pit and divide. 
um, to engage in voter suppression, to suppress uh, votes not only racially, but generationally. Right. So we see not only 14th Amendment Voting Rights Act racial voter suppression against black and brown people, but we also see 26th Amendment voter suppression in this country against young people. In other words, taking polling places off of college campuses. We see college campuses gerrymandered into various congressional districts to weaken the young vote. And so what I would say to people, you know, all across this country, certainly around the world, is beware of old politicians, right? Who are literally looking to replicate people like themselves, both racially and generationally. And I would say also their parents, right? How would you feel, you know, about those who try to create a world in which only parents and grandparents are fit to be citizens, right? This is just not anything any of us would want. We, you know, we want worlds we want a world in which our children can thrive, right? Our grandchildren can thrive. And so, like, I hate to say it, like, uh, you know, I'm not 18, I'm not 20, I'm not 30, but these, I hate to say it, these geriatric, right, and, and they're thinking, uh, politicians who are literally trying to stem the demographic tide. Um, they're trying to start these culture wars. They want don't want the children to read. You know, it's like if you want to wear pin, pinstripe suits, I favor those, fine. But I don't I have I have no I'm not threatened by anybody uh, wearing a dress, wearing pants or whatever they want to wear. And so this whole notion of like we need to pit and buy people is just ridiculous. And and they pair it with the phrase freedom. You know, they, 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 they love to use freedom as their as their kind of springboard to everything because you know you are true you are truly free unless of course you are black or gay or any of anything else that doesn't kind of fit into that mold i want to ask you about how the i want to talk about generational trauma because i think this is something that Mm. people you know when we talk about those old people they have their opinions which are come from another era right it was the the world the landscape was a completely different and and people tend to want to hark back to a period in their life that they were most successful or they were most good looking or before they got fat or something you know in their in their minds they're like that was that was a better time you know it's like donald trump in the 1980s right i mean to him that's where that's why he wears the same clothes because that was when he was at his peak and he wants to maintain that um just explain how generational trauma affects young black people who may who have no direct relationship necessarily with with the kind of historical atrocities Mm -hmm. and yet how it feels to be black in america especially if you're pulled over by a white cop for example i mean there's, there's a lot here that i don't believe people are given the opportunity to really talk about sure so let let's start off at the level of the universal and uh, humane, or as a matter of our shared humanity. Trauma for all of us is registered, according to scientists, at the epigenetic level. In other words, the trauma that we experience um, in the biggest parts of our being, our hearts and our minds, is literally registered at the cellular level. That's true for everybody, right? And so in other words, the things your grandparents did literally get passed on to this generation. So now if we think about that in terms of black people, right? And we think about like literally um, tens and tens of millions of people perishing in the transatlantic slave trade. 
we think about 4 million people, 3.9, 4 million people being enslaved in this country uh, up till 1865. And then between 1865 and the opening week of World War II, uh, through the convict leasing system, at least a million people enslaved. We think about the system of mass incarceration, which has 2.3 million people behind bars today in America. When we think about lynchings, you know, literally thousands upon thousands of lynchings, and then police brutality in this moment being a leading cause of death among young people. When we think about young um, black men being 21 times more likely to be killed by the police than their white counterparts, and we think about our phones uh, literally depicting images of black and brown people being brutalized on a daily basis and human beings being hashtag on a regular and recurring basis. This has an impact on all of us, particularly black people, right, in terms of trauma. And scientists have shown that when children are witnesses, the kind of digital bystanders to police brutality, it impacts their graves. It elevates their stress levels. Literally, our children register trauma and register stress from the police brutality in our society weeks and months later. And so the point being here is not because we as human beings or we as black people are weak. It's not because we're overly sensitive. It's not because we're woke. It is because injustice is real and pervasive. Now, this is true for black people, but it's also true for other groups as well. Now, we understand when our American veterans come back from Iraq or Afghanistan or from Vietnam before then or World War II, we understand trauma. We understand PTSD. And that makes perfect sense to us. So why would it be a stretch to conclude a six-year-old child, right, uh, watching television over their parents' shoulder and seeing Tyree Nichols being brutalized, that this wouldn't have some effect. And so I'm simply saying I'm worried about anybody and everybody uh, who are essentially witnesses to what we're going through in this moment. And so it's real. It's pervasive. I'm going to simply say this. I'm an experienced civil rights lawyer. Um, I have prosecuted cases at the Justice Department, led the nation's largest civil rights organization. But here's the thing. When I open up my phone and I see somebody being beaten up, it impacts me. Right. It, it, it distresses me. It causes me soul searing pain. And I'm experienced. Right. I'm supposed to be above this. I'm supposed to be you know, strong enough to and seasoned enough and perhaps cynical enough. No, I'm a human being. But I live in a country and in a world with many human beings who are affected uh, in a similar or worse way. Is there an argument to say that the value of life in the U.S. is 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 somewhat cheaper than elsewhere around the world? Because, you know, I, I see this a lot. We've, you know, um, nowhere else on the planet has mass shootings like the United States. Not even close. I mean, the graph is like here and here. Nowhere on the planet has this level of police brutality. Mm-hmm. You talk about lynchings. I mean, Armand Arbery was effectively lynched That's right. by three white guys. Mm-hmm. His, his mum referred to it as a, as a lynching multiple times. Mm-hmm. 
Benjamin Crump seems to show up like Batman everywhere now, right? One minute he's having to go here, and the next minute he's having to go there to support and represent black families. He's he's kind of incredible, but I hate that he has to keep doing this. It's relentless. Mm -hmm. And I just want to reference a um, Republican um, uh, a representative who on Friday during a committee hearing... Mm -hmm on a bill to bring back the electric chair and firing squads. As you know, there's some kind of crazy committee action at the moment because of the Republicans' ownership of the House. Uh, Paul Sherrill says they should also bring back lynching. Mm -hmm. That was just a few days ago. That's right. So what you're describing, as in where we need to get to and where our elected representatives and some people are, are two very different places because there are still a significant, arguably a majority, if you look at Congress, it's still old white men invariably, and what goes with that territory is this, is this desire to go back to a, to a bygone era. So how do we make these shifts and these changes? Because, you know, I look at Barack Obama's presidency now as an anomaly. You know, I, I just... I don't think something like that could necessarily ever happen again. Um, I don't know that it was a part of a trajectory. I, I very much think it was an anomaly. So explain to me, because I know people will be watching this and they'll be like, yeah, well, we know about the negatives, but how are we going to bring about change? Sure, sure. So we find ourselves in a moment where black lives seem to and do matter less, but American lives don't matter nearly as much as we said. So as you've noted, the number of mass shootings uh, in this country grows by the day, both in terms of lethality and numerosity. The number of police who are killed, uh, I should say number of police homicides has grown since George Floyd, since Michael Brown, since Ahmaud Arman. And so we find ourselves in this moment in which uh, literally life seems to matter less. And even for the folks who like to exclaim all lives matter, by their actions, they demonstrate that all lives do not matter nearly as much as we say they do. Now, how do we get ourselves out of this? One of the things I would take note of the notice uh, of the fact that this country spends more than any other country in the world in saving lives in heroic ways. Our healthcare system. We spend more to, send, to save the tiniest of babies and the oldest of people and people who are afflicted with the most rare diseases with respect to the heroic saving of lives. America probably leads the globe. Our challenge is, how do we take that level of technological and scientific and medical heroism and imbibe it, instill it in ordinary citizens? And one of the ways to do that is, A, teaching people the history in this country. In other words, not just the Martin Luther Kings and the Rosa Parks, but the foot soldiers who laid down, laid down their lives for the Constitution, laid down their lives for this republic. 
In other words, what they did in the streets of this country is akin to what was done in Gettysburg, what was done um, in Europe during World War II. So number one, teaching the people the history. Number two, I think it's incredibly important to link voting to literally saving the life of the country. Right. So in other words, we need to be very clear. It's not merely that we're voting, but we're literally voting for our future, investing in our future, uh, investing in the saving of lives in this country. Number three, I think is incredibly important is when you refer to uh, Barack Obama, I think it's important for us to speak to the country and ask people to to sacrifice for something far greater than themselves, not at the point of crisis. See, here's what we do. When George Floyd was killed, we all turn out into the streets, right? At the end of the day, what we have to do is literally call on people to do more. Part of the reason why uh, the hate is so powerful in this country is because we have insufficiently called upon people to engage in nation love, republic love, in the sense of democracy love, a caring for others, and attached to sacrifice, right? So in other words, you have to show up for other people. Right. So in other words, you know, I may not be trans, but I need to show up for trans people. Right. And that, and that, and, and be upfront about this. It's not about being woke. Right. Um, this is about be caring for others. And so when we look at the the power of the of the Kennedy presidency, and at least in terms of symbolism, it had everything to do with this notion of calling people out uh, to service. Uh, Barack Obama's presidency incredibly important. We look at the mass movements, the social justice movements in this country. It has all come down to that ability to, to call people out of their ordinary circumstances to do to make extraordinary sacrifices. Our challenge is to do that on a day-to-day basis and to give people uh, civic goals that uh, should be should be pursued. Lastly, I, I'll just note this. At the Kennedy School, I teach classes on leadership, and I teach classes not only to graduate students uh, and students within Harvard, but we also teach people beyond Harvard. And here's what I found. People want to do more. They want to sacrifice. They want to be called out of themselves. And the reason why the demagogues are so powerful is because other leaders are so weak and demand so little. And so I, I think that's just incredibly important. Last point I'll, I'll make here is when I was president and CEO of the NAACP, here's what I found, was membership spiked when we were in the streets and at the ballot box and were visible. Whenever your leadership goes beyond your speeches, beyond your tweets, uh, beyond um, um, being at the platform, literally you grow, you expand. And in this moment, you know, our, our challenge is, Ron DeSantis has a loud voice, um, and other people, uh, instead of wishing that his voice would be silenced, uh, we need to get louder. And the way to get louder is not by merely raising the volume, it's also increasing the visibility, and increasing the visibility has everything to do with showing up, doing the work. Do we need more white people to take responsibility for campaigning and, and protesting black issues and in a in a non-reactionary way because what you're describing is you know that that kind of reactionary movement to the death of George Floyd or similar and 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 I think people are very good at that and and tragically you know when the stories are so 
so violent, you know, Breonna Taylor, for example, people do feel it. All people feel it. But you know, is there more? Is there more that 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 white folk need to do to kind of bring about the equality that that we crave? You know, absolutely. You know, the, the thing is, we have to be aware of what I call crisis compassion. Compassion, which yeah. manifests itself only at the point of crisis. And so the yeah. point being here is, when white people insist that we cannot have stimulus spending and infrastructure spending with a broken Voting Rights Act, right? So we're building buildings and highways and bridges, but we have a broken Voting Rights Act. White people have to insist, no, we cannot have this without that. Similarly, we cannot have the daughter of George Floyd going to the Biden White House and receiving ice cream without a George Floyd Act. I believe that the president has... Uh, expended political capital. But I also believe that white America has to simply demand that we have a George Ford Policing Act, that we have a restored Voting Rights Act, that in other words, black people can't be the object of sympathy. They have to be the subject of public policy. And that means we have to like be very clear uh, in terms of the senators who reassure us Oh, well, look what I've done for you. I put a new bridge in your community. Yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, your citizens, your citizens uh, are vulnerable. And the last point I want to make here is when white people stand up for black people, not because they're black people, but because they're people. Like, for example, yeah. when I see Asian people being beaten up on the streets of New York, when I see elderly Asian people being uh, uh, knocked to the ground and knocked senseless, when we see Asian people, uh, Asian women in Atlanta being gunned down, I don't have to be Asian. I don't have to be a woman. I simply have to be a human being. And when, we, when white people simply take the point of view that, you know what, I don't have to explain my concern for black people. I don't have to justify it. I don't have to be a Democrat, Republican. I don't have to be woke. I can be comatose. But as long as I'm a human being, right, I have a right to speak out and I have a right to demand public policy. And what we see sometimes is, you know, white people being made to feel guilty. Like you can come out, you can speak at the point of a crisis as opposed to, well, no, I'm, you know, I'm a member of the, I'm a citizen of this republic. But there is a percentage of Americans who are not very good at this. And I, I see this here in Los Angeles with the homeless crisis. I see people posting about the fact that they want rid of these people. They, you know, and, and this is less about race, although, the, you know, there is a, a large proportion of black people on the streets. But this is less about race and it's more about this kind of distaste for humanity. It's almost like that American exceptionalism kicks in. I don't really know what it is, but there is an element of of if I'm doing okay, then that's all that matters, you know, and that's why there's this kind of hatred of the word socialism here, you know, the idea that someone else should benefit. If I'm paying and I'm paying for my health care, then why should you get it for free? I, I, people can't, you know, people can't intellectualize how these things can coexist and how not everybody is dealt a good hand in life and not everybody has the skill set to get on in the world. And I, and I feel that this, there are elements of this that are exclusive to America, and and maybe it, it transcends racism. Yeah. It's just a kind of general dissatisfaction with with other people doing better than them. Well, I, I think that has um, 
that has a lot to, to do with it. But I also think that the demagogues in American society have, are really good at using language and images in a way that uh, cause many of us to have less compassion for others. For example. Yeah, those kind of demonizing pictures we see of, of people who've committed a crime mm-hmm. who haven't yet been convicted. They choose the worst picture of them right. to kind of depict them as a criminal even before they've been criminalized. But, but, but think about this. America in the 1930s had a large group of Americans who were the poorest Americans. They were called elderly people. And we decided, right, we decided that we uh, need to ensure that people live out their um, remaining years in relative economic security. And in 2023, nobody thinks of Social Security in the main. Right, the, at least regular people, and we have a few extremists in, in 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 the Senate. Not Mike Pence, who refers to it as an entitlement. But in the main, most people feel like you know we do not uh, want elderly people starving to death. I'm simply saying here that when it comes to uh, the homeless, when it comes to various otherwise marginalized uh, groups, part of our challenge is making sure that. When we're talking about public policy, we use language and we use words, we use images that uh, allow people to retain their humanity, number one. Number two, recognize the sense of responsibility and agency that most people have. Here's what we find. Most people do want to work. Most people do want to contribute meaningfully to to society. Uh, Most people um, don't want anything from somebody else if they can do for themselves. And what we find in this country over and over again is this notion that um, um, somebody's getting something for nothing. Well, here's the thing. We provide uh, public schooling in this country. We don't say to to 18, think about it. 12-year-old children get free education. We pay for their lunches. They're in school eight hours a day. Well, 100 years ago, they would be on a farm working. We're not saying in 2023 that the 12-year-olds who are spending eight hours a day learning ABCs and, and, and algebra are, are somehow indolent or lazy. The problem is we need to shift our vocabulary. We need to shift the language. We need to humanize people because, you know, the demagogues in our society are really, really good at getting us to hate one another. The demagogues have a media organization on their side, uh, and that is Fox, which has you know, more cable news viewers than any any other channel. And we've seen this week or this last week that exposés on what those Fox hosts really thought about knowing full well that the election wasn't rigged and, you know, and yet what they said in private was very different to what they said on the air. So they've been basically tricking their viewers with propaganda for, for decades. And and so now the proof of that is is really coming out. There is a, a phrase that has been weaponized, um, and Fox specifically uh, are, have used it a lot, the incessant focus on critical race theory over the past few years, a, a term derived from a, an academic discipline that's been inflated now to cover a wide range of race-focused issues. Um, and it's evolved along with the discourse to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is a this is a problem, isn't it? When people don't understand 
they just join in. And I saw an interview with someone, I think he was like at a Trump rally or similar, and he was a Trump supporter, and he was asked, you know, what, what what's bothering you? And he's like, I don't like this critical race theory. Right. And the guy asked him, well, well, what is it? What don't you like about it? And he couldn't, couldn't answer the question. Right. And so the, he, he didn't know, but he didn't like it. And Fox is the reason he didn't like it. And, and, and right-wing talk radio is the reason that he, he doesn't like it. And for those people who care to kind of find out anything about it, they'll know that it, it's, it's not a threat to anybody, you know, maybe for the few people that choose to do it as a university module, because I hear it's kind of a difficult course. <laughs> but outside of that, it, it, it just means that there is, and this is like we said at the very beginning, this kind of use of language, war on terror and, and, and referring to, you know, black people as, as murderers and rapists, which Trump then used with Mexicans. I mean, it's, it's rhetoric, right and and crt is is rhetoric so let's just talk about maybe maybe we could talk about what is being talked about in school that they don't like because it's not a class on critical race theory but hopefully we would want teachers to be being inclusive and not denying american history so let me just take note of let me share with you a story um, on critical race theory. So when I was a first-year student in college, I took a class on American constitutional law. And the book that we used was called Race, Racism, and the Law by Professor Derrick Bell. Professor Derrick Bell, as you know, was the first African-American professor tenured at Harvard Law School. And in this book, there were cases having to do with the 13th Amendment, freeing um, enslaved people, the 14th Amendment granting them citizenship, the 15th Amendment granting them, namely black men, the right to vote. My exposure to the father of critical race theory had this disastrous and dangerous effect on my life. I fell in love with the Constitution. I fell in love with the 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the First Amendment. I I, I fell in love with the idea that lawyers could go to court and vindicate the rights of American citizens. So my exposure to this dangerous, detrimental uh, ideology was a lifetime of public service. And where do I teach now? But at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and Harvard University, where I spend most of my time trying to inspire and instruct um, leaders on serving others. And so, first of all, the the notion of critical race theory being dangerous, um, I I think it's just outrageous, right? So it is not a bad thing for our students in colleges and law schools and graduate schools to think about race critically, right? Even our conservative um, colleagues, like to think that they are thinking about race critically. So first of all, it's not bad. It's not, it's not a bad thing. Secondly, I, I think that the, the other part of your question was... Um, um, well, using the, the kind of acronym as, as you know, weaponizing the kind of the acronym rather than what it actually means. That's right. And how, so part of it is if you were to go into a fifth grade classroom and you said, 
today we're going to talk about existentialism. You know, you might not get a lot of comprehension there, right? And, and if you say to a great many people in this country, uh, existentialism is bad. Aristotelian philosophy is bad. Uh, you might yeah. say that physics is bad simply because that may or may not be something that they're spending a lot of time on. But I think one of the ways we combat that is communicating very simply. Is learning bad? Is curiosity a bad thing? Uh, is nurturing the brilliance of your children a bad thing? Is reading a bad thing? Sometimes well, it's thinking critically a bad thing. I mean, that's the other thing. If you take race out of the equation, you still have critical thinking, which will actually benefit you in, in, in life, in your career, with your relationships. It, it, it has such value. And, and it's, I mean, it's as if they want to ban critical thinking from education. That, that's exactly. And first of all, there's this notion that this is something these intellectual elites that come up with. Yeah. So first of all, let's let's be clear about this. The people who drove the American Civil Rights Movement in the main were not elites at Harvard and Yale. Every great social justice movement in this country has been led by people who come from all kinds of educational backgrounds. So part of our challenge is telling telling the story. Right. I would argue the moral arguments, the 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 big democracy questions of critical race theory are questions posed by ordinary people. Right. And so this whole notion that, you know, this is a matter of the elites against everybody else. First of all, you know, I I I, I guess I'm guilty of uh, teaching at Harvard. I'm probably guilty of having gone to Yale Law School. But I'm also guilty of going to Head Start, which is an educational program for children who come from uh, families with modest means. I come from a family of all kinds of people, most of whom, many of whom, are working class who work incredibly hard uh, to send their uh, kids to school. I come from the low country of South Carolina, and I, I, think, um, I think my roots are more grassroots than Mr. DeSantis could ever imagine. The point being is we, we have to like tell the story about ordinary people from, come from all kinds of backgrounds who are interested in, in taking up big questions about our democracy and thinking critically. You know, there's something that kind of economically patronizing about the way, you know, these Ivy League elites talk down to everybody else, right? So Ron DeSantis is essentially saying to people, you know, I don't trust your children to think critically. I don't even trust your children to read. That's why we want fewer books on the bookshelf, right? So in other words, we have to like speak to these issues assuming that everyone has the ability to think critically, that everyone has the ability to engage these questions in a, in a thoughtful way, right? You know, one of the things that I, I'm um, pleased by in my classes at Harvard, I encountered students from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of families, all kinds of economic situations. And I, for one, know that I went to Yale on uh, a little scholarship from the seminary I went to. Right. I went there on student loans. And so this notion that, you know, that, 
you know, this is a this is some kind of a uh, culture war against the elites. It's just it, ju- it just drives me to distraction, particularly when the people waging the war are themselves elites. Maybe it would be a good idea now to like turn this on its head and for people who care about critical thinking and indeed critical thinking about race to actually go out of their way to put it into schools, into elementary schools, into middle schools, mm. and actually say, okay, w- we are having classes dedicated to this mm. because, you know, because, uh, rather because I, I really feel, especially as a, as a parent of kids in, in, in public school, that, you know, I, I just trust that I have non-racist teachers teaching my children and that they will be inclusive with the people in class and that if somebody asks them a question a critical question about race, that that question will not be brushed under the carpet and the whole class will be included. And I just went to my to my daughter's, you know, um, Black History Month event mm-hmm. at school and, and, I, and, it was, and it was great. So, you know, m- maybe that's the solution. I just want to finish with a, with a, a question about um, something that caused a lot of white racists' brains to malfunction recently. And that was the... Um, the the brutal killing of Tyre Nichols, mm-hmm. and and I think you know what I'm going to say. It's the fact that he was he was executed effectively by five black police officers, mm-hmm. and the people that don't understand why this is as bad as white police officers killing black people, or is you know just follows a similar pattern. There are people that I have heard who have used this event as an excuse to excuse police brutality in other situations. In fact, I've heard a whole bunch of different explanations from people who don't think critically and who should know better and who maybe deep inside were kind of pleased that it was black police officers rather than white police officers this time round lynching and, 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 and killing a, a black man. Let's just explain a little bit to people just finally about, you know, the, the attitude of police departments and, and maybe, you know, a little on police training and, or whatever it is that led up to that event and why it isn't what they thought it was. So many Americans and others experience a kind of emotional and historical shock, if you will, that Tyree Nichols was uh, executed on multiple videotapes from multiple angles by black police officers. But what's important to note here is not merely the race of the perpetrators, but the consistent and racial homogeneity of the victims. So when literally a young black man is 21 times more likely to be killed by the police than his white counterpart, it doesn't particularly matter with respect to the victim the color of the hands of the murderer. And so the fact that literally a leading cause of death among black men is police homicide, 
not unlike cardiovascular disease or high blood pressure um, or um, sickle cell anemia, some, some other uh, illness. This alone is disturbing. So in other words, the racial disparities with respect to the victimization is more important than the uh, color of the victimized, point one. Point two, if we go back to the origins of American policing, namely the slave patrols, right? The history shows that literally the slave patrols, particularly in the South, gave rise to modern police departments. And in fact, if you look at the badges that the slave patrollers wore in the 1800s, they look like the badges police wear in 2023. And with the slave patrols, though they were run, organized by white people, it was sometimes with the assistance of black people. And so it is not enough to say that the hands of those who killed Tyree Nichols were black as a way of absolving this whole system of white supremacy. So the, the, point two. Point three here is, if we were to think about any kind of um, public policy challenge in this country where a great many people are harmed, right? So in other words, with the financial crisis uh, in this country, there were uh, bankers who engaged in massive fraud. Those people lost their homes. We're not reassured by the fact that the majority of the people who defrauded them were white, right? The, the point being here is race is important, but race is important with respect to the victim, not the perpetrator, right? Critically important here. And the last point, last point I'll, I'll simply make is that when we wrap our heads around the fact that literally a thousand plus people a year, most recently 1,100 people a year, are killed by the police every year. And so what that suggests to us is even if a disproportionate number of the people were not black, we have a problem in this country in that that is not true um, of the English or the French or the Spanish or the Portuguese. It is distinctively true, lamentably true, tragically true of Americans. And we can do better because it has not always been this way. And, and the, the tragedy is that, you know, a lot of these things escalate from traffic stops, you know, things that are that, you know, you, even if your registration is out of date, that does not mean that you should die. That's right. And for me, I think that is really the most kind of significant sadness that I feel for this is that, that any time somebody is pulled over a black person pulled over by a white police officer, there is that fear that even if they were speeding five miles an hour over or if their registration is out of date or something, and this is why so many of them run, make a run for it. They're literally running for their lives. And, and you know, that, that is the bit that, that people need to understand, that, you know, that the equivalent white privilege that I or somebody else might experience will be a, a completely different 
I don't fear for my life if I'm pulled over for speeding. I know I'm not going to die, but it's not the same for everybody. It's not the same. And in fact, I would ask, you know, every person watching this program, imagine if every time you put your key in the ignition, every time you put your hands on the steering wheel, that there is a possibility of you being on the wrong end of a death sentence, right? I mean, without a trial, not a trial, no jury on the side of the road. Yeah. I mean, I've had yeah. the experience of being stopped 25, 30 times for no reason. I've had the experience of having a police officer pull up behind me. I have my hands on the steering wheel. I have my license out, my wallet on the dashboard, the interior light on and the windows down. Now, I want you to imagine having to live your life in a state of hypervigilance. Now, I want you to imagine what happens when you have children and you have sons. And whenever they go out in your car, you're looking to see, is everything in working order? And you have to give them the talk, as black parents call it, repeatedly. And so the, the point being here is the level of stress, the level of anxiety is real. And when you hear or should say see on your phone some traffic stop gone awry, you literally first thing you think to yourself, is this somebody I know? And so if, if, if more white people thought like this, this problem would end in a day because the, the, the reality is that this is completely unnecessary. Right. In other words. I, I'm not, I, I can recall a time when a police officer stopped me for the umpteenth time asking me, where do you live, what do you do for a living, and why are you out this late at night? And the answer is always... And let's be clear, he stopped you because you were black. He didn't stop you for no reason. He stopped you because you were black. In other words, when I, I would drive from a majority black city into majority white suburbs. I was never stopped in the city, always stopped in majority white suburbs. And literally those three questions, where are you going? What do you do for a living? And why are you out this late at night? And of course, I live at ABC address. I'm a lawyer and people in my profession often work this late at night, right? And it, and it had nothing to do with anything other than my being in my car and being black. Yeah. And so yeah. the, the, the thing I would just impress upon our people is that's a very dangerous recipe, right? In other words, if you're afraid and the police officer filled with a head full of stereotypes and, and ra racial apprehension. And they're worried about dying as well. I mean, that's why they approach vehicles with their gun guns drawn, drawn right? right? You know, I, yeah. I, I remember two police officers approaching me in a vehicle, both of them with their hands on their guns. And me searching uh, my vocabulary for what words I might say to simply say, might you all, gentlemen, move your hands away yeah. from your guns so that... Yeah. You can ask whatever questions you need to ask, but I would I I would be uh, infinitely more lucid, infinitely more responsive if you take your hands off your guns. 
there are so many incidences of young black men being shot in the back. And invariably that means that they're running away. Yeah. And if it's the case of a traffic stop, you know, I often say there's clearly no police training. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no national training. So every police department will get a completely different type of training. Um, but this idea of the crime and the punishment being out of whack is something that's very interesting, isn't it? Because suddenly in the mind of the police officer, it's the fact that the black man is running away becomes the crime rather than the registration on the vehicle that was the reason they were stopped in the first place. Mm -hmm. Critical thinking would say, or even critical race theory would say, let them go. Let them run. You've got the registration. You can pick them up on another day, but you don't have to murder them. And that message is just not getting through. And that goes back to this idea that in America, the value of life is much lower than it is in most other countries or westernized countries of the world. It's, uh, it goes back to a point you made earlier about a kind of law and order um, culture uh, in policing. And what I call, I would call law, order, and compliance. So in other words, compliance right. becomes this value which rise, rises in importance and has priority over even the offense you're investigating, even the, the reason for the stop, just the notion that, that a black person resists. And what you find quite often is people not resisting. But, you know, it's sort of like if, if I place my hands on you and you flinch, is that a natural reaction or is it resisting? And then that becomes a predicate for escalation uh, in violence. And, and, and in terms of your earlier point about the absence of training and certainly the absence of uniform training, think about it this way. We have 18,000 police departments in this country in 19,000 jurisdictions. In this country, if you go in for a routine surgical procedure, each hospital is not training their doctors to conduct their own individual version of that procedure, right? So if yeah. you're going for an appendectomy, yeah. you're not going for um, a, a one appendectomy at, at NYU Langone, a different kind of appendectomy at St. Mary's uh, Hospital and a different kind uh, in some other hospital. But when it comes to policing, we literally have, we don't even have a franchise approach. We literally have every mom and pop doing their own version of, of training. Um, the standards are not uh, consistent. There's been a resistance to a, a kind of uniform training, uniform standards. And the other thing is, when it comes to another group of, of public servants, if you will, uh, physicians, they operated by a code of do no harm. Our police operate under a code of suffer no harm which is to say we can impose whatever harm we deem necessary to avoid our suffering or harm, even though we have, in fact, signed up for the job. Think about that. Yeah, and, and we might be wearing a bulletproof vest, and it says protect and serve on the side of our, uh, side of our squad car. That's right. It, it's like it, doesn't, it doesn't line up, does it? And, and, but that suggests to me that there is, you know, when – and I've said this before on this show, you know, whenever – political leaders say 
that there's, you know, a very small percentage of police officers are the bad eggs. And, every, you know, the vast majority, they always use the, the vast majority are the. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm seeing. That's not what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look at the faces of the police officers that stood by when George Floyd was being executed, there is this kind of cult mentality no matter the race of the police officer, that the 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 boys in blue, you know, the, the the police are an authority, and therefore whatever they say must be adhered to. And no matter what you say to that, even I can't breathe, is is not enough mm. to warrant them changing their behaviour. Yeah, it, there, there is a. Um a code, a blue wall of silence, as, as has been well described. But there's a, a kind of uh, a culture that suggests blue, right or wrong. And what we've seen in certain police departments uh, in the country is an effort to address that. So, for example, uh, in the New Orleans Police Department, they developed a, a program to promote ethical policing to encourage essentially police to police one another. So in other words, when a police officer engages in any behavior that is a serious violation of of policy, every other police officer has a responsibility to intervene, not merely report. To intervene first and then report. And what we have seen across the country is we've seen a few police officers and police departments embrace this, but not the an embrace of this across the board, and I believe that has everything to do with policing in this country being in a collective state of crisis and a collective state of self-denial, right? In other words, here we have an industry that does not recognize that the public feels they have to rely on them, but they're also apprehensive and distrustful. So in other words, just because we rely on the police because we're afraid of crime does not necessarily mean we are not afraid of them. And there does not seem to be an appreciation for the fact that literally, reputationally speaking, uh, the police are deeply distrusted. And, you know, if, if, for example, on the Supreme Court, um, Chief Justice Roberts may be conservative, he may be, he may not be the the jurist liberals or progressives like, but he does seem to be at least concerned about the standing of the court, even if he hasn't done as much as a great many people uh, think he should do. But the perception is that he's concerned about the standing of the court. The question I ask is when it comes to policing, Who's concerned about the standing of policing? Where is the fraternal order of police? Right? You know, when 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 Tyree Nichols was killed after he was murdered, I looked on their website. I'm looking for some kind of notice. I'm looking for some kind of recognition of the horror of this. I'm looking for some appreciation for what these endless hashtags have done to the standing of police in this country, I don't see any. What I saw were more, more, you know, more demands for money, 
uh, higher salaries, concern for benefits. And that, and that's why that kind of defund the police rhetoric was so unhelpful, right? Because it it it, it again miscommunicated what needs to change in in policing. And and I think what you're saying is that that policing in America contributes to a culture of fear, the same fear that Fox are peddling on their phone news channel, the same fear that we hear from elected representatives who are talking about you know, referring to immigrants as raci- uh, as rapists and, and, and murderers. And uh, some, I hear, are very nice people, according to Donald Trump. Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is the problem, isn't it? That this, this culture of fear keeps people in their place. It enables the, the status quo. The police unions wield so much power across the police services. The NRA wields so much power across the Republican Party. So there there is these kind of baked-in um, kind of institutions that are preventing these types of organizations from evolving. And, and I would say it, it prevents these institutions from evolving, but they're also ultimately self-defeating. So here's what we know. We know when it comes to policing that to the extent that police are distrusted, policing is more difficult. Meaning if People don't trust you. They don't cooperate with you. They don't serve as witnesses. They don't provide uh, the necessary information to fuel investigations. So policing is infinitely more difficult. Your solve rate for crimes goes down. The danger your police officers are exposed to goes up. And so the point being here is we're locked in this cycle of distrust, which is empirically based. In other words, people have reason to distrust the police. But it makes black people's lives more vulnerable. It makes policing more difficult. And the reality is there's a way out of this, right? There's a way out of this. And I don't mean just getting rid of the so-called bad apples. It means fundamentally changing policing. Like, in other words, why do we need the police involved in mental health intervention? Why do we need the police engaging in uh, parking violation enforcement? Why do we need the police doing so many things that they themselves deem themselves to be unqualified for and um, unhappy doing? There's so many elements, there's so many aspects of policing that can be changed in a reasonable, thoughtful way uh, if the police and their unions come to the table and, and acknowledge the obvious. Why are we spending literally billions of dollars in lawsuit settlements and insurance premiums for people who are ostensibly public servants. And the thing is, if everybody like came to their senses and said, you know what, we can do better. It, this is not a problem that would take forever to solve. I mean, it, it, we, you go into hospitals, uh, physicians recognize, you know, we have too many in-hospital infections because doctors weren't washing their hands. Literally, Doctors develop healthcare protocols, they have checklists, they change the way they operate. When it comes to policing, much or better can be done, but it really depends on the degree to which they realize they're in a state of crisis. In other words, this whole notion of fund the police, this this makes about as much sense as fund malpracticing doctors. The issue is not funding. You know, healthcare yeah. is fucking. It should be train the police or right. educate the police or yeah, 
But and just a final point because we're kind of over time. But I, I want to. I, I am noting that there are police, or I suppose you could ask the question: Who would join the police service or the police force? Right? Who? What type of character? What type of person do you have to be to want to put yourself in danger? shoot guns we've heard that there are some police officers who relocate because they weren't getting enough action in some jurisdictions and they want to go and do a bit more shooting of of uh, innocent civilians in in other jurisdictions i mean you know a lot of this also comes down to character and you know maybe that was the case when we look at you know george floyd and derek chauvin for example right. you know he's his character was right. very much at the heart of this and if there is a culture of the of the of the character of a person who wants to go and shoot and and have a badge, you know that kind of authority figure kind of goes back to to Ron DeSantis, doesn't it? And and Donald Trump, these authoritarians, mm. people that want and feel they can only feel comfortable in their skin if they are kind of discharging orders, mm. and that they are maybe instilling fear in other people. Mm. You know, the, the thing I think about is they're most certainly among the ranks of the police those who derive um, honor in protecting others. They're people like that. They really believe in protecting others. Then there are others who are on a pathological power trip. And the only way we can separate and discern is by making it harder to become a police officer, extending the amount of time it takes to become a police officer. In many places in this country, we effectively just give out badges and guns, right? The screening process is ex ex exceedingly um, uh, short not particularly discerning and not particularly demanding. And there are many places in the world where the standards are a lot higher. The, the process of getting joining the force is infinitely more difficult. So we have to do that. But the other part of that, you know, and I think we have to be honest here, is accountability on the back end. Right? So in other words, the police officers can literally kill people, get promotions, get a retirement and a pension, with no consequence, we have to look at qualified immunity, right? We have to hold police officers accountable. Because literally, we have police officers in this country who literally <clears throat> engage in serial killing, right? Derek Chauvin. But again, that only happens in America. It's it, That is, again, exclusive to the United States. Yeah. And that goes back to this notion that, that the value of life here is is less than, than elsewhere on the planet. Yeah, I, you know, I one of my colleagues... Uh, made me aware of something the other day. I believe in Iceland, they had their first police homicide in the history of the country. Right? Yeah. What 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 took an, a nation, you know, uh, the better part of a century, to uh, suffer as a tragedy? We suffer in a matter of hours every day. Yeah. And we've had one. We've had one in England in the in the last. 40 years, um, Jean-Charles de Menezes, one person killed killed by the police in a case of mistaken identity. And, one. And the thing is, it happens so frequently here that it doesn't even merit thoughts and prayers but at the hands of the most callous 
politicians. And so I think part of our challenge here is helping Americans who do so many things, I think, well, appreciate the fact that this is something that can be done well. We've gotten used to it being done so poorly, so badly, so tragically, so tragically, so violently that we've come to accept that as a standard. Right? In every other area, you know, when it comes to um, saving uh, um, premature children, you know, we have like the most sophisticated technology. You know, we, you know, in this country, it's like we're like great at doing the heroic and the complex. Sometimes the basic and simple, um, we don't do as well, right? So when it comes to yeah. preventing, you know, um, uh, early births, not so good, right? When it comes to saving children in terms of fancy neonatal units, very good. When it comes to um, policing and, and providing police with the latest and best technology, we, we, you know, we do that extraordinarily well. What we don't do well is making it clear that all of that is unnecessary and lethal, um, violent, and, and dangerous. And we can do better. I, I, I just want to you know, make clear here that we are where we are because we've accepted this as a standard and one that need not be. And if we relate this to history, right, one of the things that I, I, I like to uh, let my students uh, uh, digest is when you read, turn the pages of black history, you see all of these people who took intractable problems and helped the country solve it, right? So when we think about uh, Thurgood Marshall being segregated out of the University of Maryland Law School and becoming one of the greatest constitutional litigators in American history and becoming a Supreme Court justice, uh, but when he started his practice, he was practicing law in a Jim Crow system. So my point being here is, and I tell my students this all the time, if our forebears did what all they did with what little they had, what more can we do with all that we have been given? And we've been given quite a, quite a bit in this country, but we have to demand more of ourselves. Okay. Thank you very much for the the benefit of your of your expertise and um i'd love to sit in your class sometime that uh, would be i would love that i would absolutely love that <laughs> broadcast live <laughs> yeah you bet uh professor brooks thank you so much i'm anthony davis please subscribe to the weekend show on youtube or as an audio podcast and don't forget to visit patreon.com slash five minute news for exclusive patreon only videos bonus content live q a's for members so please subscribe for some exclusive access join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the five minute news weekend show with midas touch For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.